Welcome to the Final Girls Podcast. I'm Anna Bogutska, your podcast host, and much like pretty much everyone else on the planet, I have been watching a little production by the name of True Detective Night Country. I'm extremely pleased that one of my favorite critics working today, Roxana Haddadi, who is Vulture's TV critic, who also writes about film and pop culture, has joined me to discuss the, what should we call it, continuation, reimagining, season four, basically, of Nick Pizzolatto's cult show True Detective, which very much had a lot of us, myself included, in a cultural chokehold back in 2014. Now, I'll be covering the original season of the show in our main series that just started last week. I look forward to re-watching that and seeing how well or not so well it has aged. But I absolutely gobbled up True Detective Night Country, which had Issa Lopez, the writer-director of one of my favorite horror films from the last decade, Tigers Are Not Afraid, at its helm. Lopez's version of the show stars Jodie Foster, an actor that needs no introduction, and former boxer turned actor Kelly Rees as two former detective partners in Ennis, way up in Alaska trying to solve a particularly gruesome murder that has eerie similarities and connections to another murder case that they worked on years before. That is the general premise, but obviously things get a lot more complicated. And with Issa Lopez's background in horror, this entry into the True Detective universe has a distinctly dark sensibility. There's been a lot to love about True Detective Night Country, and also quite a lot of controversy surrounding it. Roxana and I talk greatly about the show and in depth as well as the context of the original True Detective series and the context for True Detective Night Country. There will be spoilers later on in the episode. I'll mark all of that in the show notes as well as leaving links for Roxana's excellent pieces about True Detective Night Country over on Vulture. I, with all of that said, please enjoy our takes on True Detective Night Country. Roxana, thank you so much for making the time to chat to me about the show. Yes, thank you so much for having me on. Uh, I'm a big fan of your of your writing, as you know, and I've really enjoyed all your coverage of True Detective Night Country over at Vulture. But before we dig into the show itself, and to kick us off, since it's the first time that we're recording together, can you tell mm-hmm. me a little bit about your own personal relationship to horror? Yeah, this is such a good question, because it made me start thinking about uh, why I started watching horror as a kid. Um, Mm. And I think so much of it was because my parents were, uh, I think somewhat typical, maybe 90s parents, and that they were like, don't watch stuff with sex in it. (laughs) (laughs) And we actually like, we were in a time where a lot of stuff was being made that had sex in it. Um, So I think I sort of was like, okay, if I can't watch that stuff, then I guess I'll just watch horror uh, far too early. 
Um, and so I was watching like Jacob's Ladder and The Shining and all of these sort of like classic horror movies, probably far too early. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think I would say my relationship with horror started then, you know, sort of the, the transgressive feeling of maybe watching something that I shouldn't be watching, mm -hmm. uh, the visceral feeling of being afraid. I am very much a scaredy cat. So I do watch these things with like my eyes half covered, but they sort of percolate in my brain later on. Um, and I think I've always just sort of been drawn to inexplicable things and trying to puzzle them out a little bit about like, what are the ramifications of things that you don't understand and how do they affect your daily life? Um, I think that sort of tension has always been what has interested me. So in film, of course, in television, something like Twin Peaks mm. was something that I avoided watching for a long time. And then when I did, of course, the specter of Bob... <laughs> is so yeah. horrifying um books like house of leaves so i i enjoy the feeling of being scared i probably gravitate more toward like the ghost supernatural side of things than the slasher side of things um but all of that is to say that then the ghost supernatural stuff really primed me for being a true detective fan Oh, I love that. I love how you set me up to move mm -hmm. into True Detective. <laughs> I appreciate that deeply. Um, of course. <laughs> but also love the um, the attraction to the unexplainable and mm -hmm. the both emotional and practical ramifications of that on the story, but also on us as an audience. Very mm -hmm. much um, share that childhood fascination with you. So... Mm -hmm. Moving into True Detective, um, before we kind of go into Night Country as its own show, really, the cult of True Detective, particularly the first season that aired 10 years ago, um, and despite the subsequent two other seasons that have aired since right. then, the cult has really grown. And I wonder kind of what do you think captivated people so much uh, and has kept them coming back to this um to, to to this first season this is such an interesting question because i think we've all been trying to answer it mm. for for a decade especially as you know the second and third seasons each have their own uh sort of committed following but i agree with you that season one remains this very special thing mm. um and i, I I feel like it's I feel like it's two things. I think on the technical side of things, that year when I went back and I was like considering this when writing my Night Country review, so much stuff that happened in the first season of the show was years before we had seen it in other television. Like as an example, mm -hmm. like Carrie Fukunaga directing all episodes of this show. This was before Soderbergh did that with the Nick. This was before Sam Esmail did it with uh, Mr. Robot. You know, yes. this was before Big Little Lies did it. So I think it was really fascinating at the time 
to get one director doing the quote unquote cinematic thing for a mini series of television. I think we were still, we were still young then <laughs> and that felt, you know, fascinating and new. Um, and then of course, you know, what that brought us was things like that six minute uninterrupted one take which really was true detective declaring you know we're not like other television right like yeah not only are we not like other cop shows in that we're doing this weird supernatural carcosa yellow king mm. horror inflicted thing and we're going to give you a level of style um and cinematic mastery that maybe you have not seen on television before so uh, I mean, all of my thoughts on like Nick Pazzolato aside, and the fact that we sort of learned that Carrie Fukunaga uh, was a creep, all of that aside, <laughs> that first season really had a core that felt different mm -hmm. um, and really had a writing style that felt dense and interesting almost in like a deadwood style way in that hbo lineage of shows that are verbose and literary and yes. just really pleasant to listen to um of course what we learned is that again some of that was pizzolato taking those ideas from other established horror writers mm -hmm. and you know lifting passages from alan moore uh but again at the time it felt really singular. Mm. And I also think at that time we were primed from shows like Lost, from Twitter and Reddit being still sort of new and not the cesspools that they are now, that people were, you know, very communal in trying to figure out the mystery and very communal in gathering clues and trying to put the puzzle together. So all of this is like very long-winded uh, to answer your question, but I think a lot of it was timing and a lot of it was what TV had not yet done, what the internet was able to do at that time in terms of like building a shared experience. Um, you know, like if you were on Twitter after the episodes ended, mm. it was just like an explosion of like, what, like, what are Rust and Cole doing? Like, what's happening? What broke them up in the two timelines? Like, there was a lot of that. And so I think we, you know, we hold that season as very special because it really was like a remarkably crafted season of television. Um, but I think we also hold it special because like, the seasons to follow moved away from it, right? Like mm -hmm. they were not as interested in sort of a supernatural thing, but they were doing the same sort of like grizzled cop stereotypes. Mm -hmm. It felt like True Detective, you know, it had set a template for itself, but it simultaneously was disinterested in following parts of that template, but maybe overly committed to other parts. Um, so it's, yeah, it's just, it's a weird, you know, it's a, it's a weird cultural artifact to interrogate because you're right. The cult has grown. And I, I wonder now a decade later, like how much of that cult is like the worst kinds of fans, the people who are just like, these men made a great season of television that no woman could ever recreate, right? I do think that that mm. is a subset of fans and like we can't 
ignore them. But on the other hand, it's just such a good season of television <laughs> that I hate, you know, that I hate to suggest that, like, it's only, you know, like sexist fanboys who like it because i don't think that's the case yeah i i agree and i'm thinking i have not rewatched the series in a few years so we watched it a few years mm -hmm. back because i fully at and i remember the my own reaction to it as well as the way that people around me were reacting to it the fandom around mm. it, the conversation and i think mm. it also it's interesting you know you're talking about its place in prestige tv history and how film tours and film directors were moving in and kind of taking ownership and putting their stamp on not just one or two episodes but an entire series of tv and how mm -hmm. that was that felt new and that felt very much like a creative partnership that was not just a tokenistic visual bible stamp with the first two episodes right. it flowed mm -hmm. throughout the entire season between Pizzolatto and Fukunaga but there's also it coincides in the history of horror and that 2014 is when people started paying attention to horror as a as an artistic landscape not just as a commercial genre and as a genre that you know would just exist by itself with its series and its franchises and its subgenres that the fans would love to analyze and debate over and indulge in but it it really coexisted at the same time that horror became for lack of a better word more cerebral and i'm not mm -hmm. saying that, that there was an art horror or cerebral horror before that but that's when something was in the air that people the films were talking to one another even if the filmmakers weren't yet and the audience and the media started paying attention to the genre as a whole and true detective really was right in the middle of that with the mm -hmm. literary references with the supernatural denseness of it all and the mm -hmm. the quite existential and cosmic ideas at the heart of it that kind of night mm -hmm. country also uh, taps into that unknowability of so many things around us. Those are mm -hmm. those are not easily um, easily resolvable plot lines. They leave you with an unease that I think has just magnified um, in the last ten years. And I think the the reaction of people, whether the toxic fandom, the pockets of toxic fandom, as well as people's interest in Night Country, has to do with the fact that this season of True Detective, this iteration, I would say, of True Detective has more to do with that um, opening a certain Pandora's box and being afraid of what might come out of it that mm -hmm. seasons two and three did not have, or at least weren't that interested in, because they were a lot more grounded in procedurals and and cops and all of those kind of narrative tropes that we've seen a million times over so many different kinds of television mm -hmm. yeah and like the thing about 2014 is of course we had you know like we had sam raimi and we had mm -hmm. john carpenter and we had all these like very established horror filmmakers in preceding decades we had the x-files we had buffy we had shows that dealt with horror mm -hmm. but i think we didn't have as much that dealt with this sense of like lovecraftian horror like yes. eldritchian horror i think that was still sort of new to find on television 
And you're so right that 2014 was like, again, I, I we can quibble over elevated horror as a term, and I don't care for it. But Neither certainly there were a lot of movies that year that fit within that lineage, right? It was mm -hmm. like the Babadook year. It was the A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night year. It was a lot of these sort of like beautifully stylized films. Mm -hmm. And so I think when you have that and you also have how beautifully stylized True Detective was, Adam Arkopaw's cinematography is so evocative. The use of the swirls is so omnipresent. Rust's weird visions, right? Like it all, it all sort of fits together into this sense of, as you have said it, like, questioning opening Pandora's box and then regretting opening it immediately <laughs> yeah. after doing so. Um, but yeah, there was just a lot of that sort of vibe in the air, I think. And I think it sort of infected what we were looking for. It Follows was that year. I mean, we really, yes. we really were at like a turning point i think away from just like the jump scares of horror which are mm. great not you know, i'm not, not i'm not gonna just the jump scare but it was something and the witch was you know depending on what country you're in is it 2014 2015 mm -hmm. honeymoon mm. lee X film is also 2014 it was mm. a it was a real moment for the reemergence mm -hmm. of of horror. Absolutely, we were moving away from found footage. We were mm -hmm. moving away from sort of this uh, like DIY style of look at what's happening like in your house. Isn't it weird that this mm -hmm. is happening in your intimate space and gesturing at something larger and broader and more uh, conspiratorial? Like, what is It Follows, if not a sense <laughs> of, like, a overwhelming, like, demonic conspiracy here to possess us, you know? So, yeah, I think that you're completely right, that it was, like, part of a larger moment where it felt like horror as a genre was just expanding itself a little bit mm. for the mainstream, right? Because yeah. obviously the decades of horror had already been sort of doing this. But for mainstream audiences, like for an HBO audience, yes. this was really new. Yeah. And, you know, we've talked about the kind of the era where the original True Detective emerged from. But what mm -hmm. is the what is the TV landscape that has given us True Detective Night Country? Oh, this is such a good question. Because it is, it is a far different TV landscape. I mm. mean, even looking at something like HBO, uh, HBO really for the past few years has been in its like IP era, right? <laughs> it was game of thrones uh it was taking big little lies which was supposed to be a miniseries and giving it another season it was game of thrones spin-offs in yeah. the future we're gonna get a harry potter show um so i think we really are in like an hbo time where they're more willing to return to a known commodity especially for that prestige Sunday night spot. Um, and I also, you know, as much as there has been like 
a streaming explosion for a few years that certainly gave us a lot of weird TV. Uh, you know, like I think about something like Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities, mm-hmm. like a wonderful horror anthology that clearly like they gave some of these directors a fair amount of money to work with. Um, but I, I just, I sort of think that horror receded a little bit from television in a way or we were getting it and it was being canceled yes and the, like i you know like, like penny dreadful like I, yes like we had penny dreadful uh for a while and then that got canceled we had archive 81 on netflix which yeah. i loved very much and got canceled with a cliffhanger. <laughs> we know, had Channel like we Zero really, also got canceled. We had Channel Zero, yes. We actually had like a fair amount of horror on Netflix now that I'm thinking about it. Stuff that I didn't really love, like I didn't like, what was it, brand new cherry flavor? Yeah, that um, didn't really click for me either. That didn't really click for me, but we had it, right? Like mm-hmm. we had pockets of it, I think. Um, but I think what brought about night country is hbo really wanting to push a recognizable series that we have not gotten now in i believe five years Mm -hmm. so it feels like there's a certain desire for it to come back and i also think we almost are in a little bit of the same place as we were 10 years ago, where it just, it maybe feels like there isn't that much horror on TV. And if you were to do it well, it would become the conversation, mm-hmm. right? Um, so I, you know, I refuse to use time as a flat circle in this conversation. <laughs> but it is, you know, it is sort of funny that it it feels a little bit yeah. like the same circumstances are here. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially, you know, It also, I think, was very clever of HBO. We could call it clever. We could call it cynical. We could call it whatever we want. Um, But to go with a female showrunner's vision, Mm -hmm. because I do think HBO has been trying to carve out a continued space for itself as a place where stories about women are welcome. Um, continuing that, like, Sex and the City, Hacks, Big Little Lies, The Undoing. Like, you can come to us for visions of fully rounded women. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that was, like, I almost want to say I think that was tactical, um, especially since Pizzolatto's deal with HBO ended a few years ago. Um, and they don't necessarily need to bring him back i'm trying to say that in the nicest way possible but you know like he left the deal ended he Mm -hmm. left for fx that deal ended and now he is with amazon so i i think it was an opportunity for them to sort of get back into this franchise Mm -hmm. deliver to people this franchise which they recognize and have a relationship with already um, and also sort of hit the, can we get diversity in here? <laughs> can we tell women we care about them? <laughs> and do that all with this show. 
And it is also, like, I am also cynical about the reasons why people, you know, big companies that traffic with IP um, mm-hmm. choose to hire who the they choose to hire. They make. Yeah. Right, I, exactly. IP rules everything. So mm-hmm. mostly that is the reason, I find. But I do, I loved Issa Lopez's tigers are not afraid film when it came out in 2017 mm-hmm. 2018 i think and i was ex- really excited for her to take the helm what's interesting to her to me about her being at the forefront of this iteration of the show is not just her visual sensibility which she's proven time and time again but it's the fact that she's now in both the pizzolato and the fukunaga role she's establishing she's directing the show but she's also the showrunner she's the writer um so and mm-hmm. i wonder what you think or what expectations you had um considering her horror um disposition her previous work like what did you expect from the show in her hands and did you find that it sort of delivered on those expectations mm, this is this is really getting me to think um <laughs> I had seen Tigers Are Not Afraid. Mm-hmm. So I think that, you know, it's really funny. Before I uh, wrote my review of Night Country, mm-hmm. I had written an essay that eventually became the Night Country review. But it was sort of trying to figure out what would an Issa Lopez and Barry Jenkins, because he was originally attached as well, right? And then eventually yeah. just became an executive producer. But there were rumors in the beginning that like he was going to write or he was going to direct. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd written an essay that was trying to figure out, based on their prior work, what they would bring to True Detective. And I remember thinking that it was probably some fantastical visuals like a sense of like magical realism a blurring of reality and unreality or heightened reality and i remember also thinking that there probably would be some sort of emphasis on children obviously because tigers are not afraid is so committed to following what does the world look like through a child's eyes and also because so much of moonlight um which of course is going to be like Barry Jenkins masterwork for a very long time um, is about the experience of being a child and trying to understand the world around you. So I remember thinking those two things might be what would guide this season, um, a visual sense of both playfulness and foreboding and maybe a narrative focus on youth and sort of adolescence and what is it like to be facing the world on your own um so those were sort of uh, sort of the early inclinations i had and i uh, i don't want to say i was right because i don't think <laughs> it's fully right <laughs> Um, but I think like the horror sense that we get mm. from Lopez's early work, I think is heightened a lot in Night Country. I think it is honestly, for me, it hits a lot of like the stuff that scares me the most. Um, but what I did really like is I liked that there was a focus in the series on 
adolescence and adolescent loneliness and sort of that feeling of being a child and having parents, but maybe not having the best relationship with them and feeling like something is missing. I liked that that stuff ended up being in there Mm -hmm. because it did feel different from previous seasons of True Detective, which every so often have like a little subplot about, you know, the cop's children. Like season one obviously had the subplot where Marty's elder daughter is rebelling against him. Um, Season two had Rachel McAdams' character sort of dealing with sexual trauma from her childhood. Season three was about like a kidnapping and uh, the detectives feel that it was like a prominent family that did the kidnapping to replace their missing daughter. So parenthood has really been there. I mean, Colin Farrell in season two trying to figure out if his son is his son or the product of his wife's rape. So parenthood has really been there. I think the parent perspective has been there. But I liked that this season did the child perspective, right? It sort of moved the generational focus in a way that I thought was a good uh, creative update. Well, there's something really interesting that you've just sparked in me as you were talking about this idea of what's it like to face the world on your own. I think Mm -hmm. that's kind of part of the the DNA of True Detective in a way. Down from the first season, you know, these two lone, honest detectives you know who are committed to solving this crime that is wrapped in um uh be that just evil in the larger sense of the world or just corruption and the same kind of applies to true detective night country right these two Mm -hmm. women who are kind of facing themselves and facing this murder and trying to solve it in the face of everyone else just not really giving that much of a shit and then with all of their own personal demons as well that also leave them alone dan versus kind of you know feeling alienated from her daughter and also having lost her son being by herself she's often shot by herself as well in her intimate moments and navarro effectively as the season moves on feeling completely lost in this wilderness and uh, separated even from her, not just her family, but her ancestry as well. So there's a lot of them just being in the darkness, literally, but also metaphorically, mm-hmm. trying to find their way to someone, any form of connection. And often that being the way that they are fooled. But, you know, whether you choose to interpret this as a superna- fully supernatural show or not, um, they are sometimes being messed around by these forces that are guided by this desire of being not alone mm-hmm. no i definitely think that and i i think the sense of being not alone again is i think it's a genre thing that is really important to the dna of true detective mm-hmm. because i think it pops up every season again like marty and rust are essentially two loners who realize that they need each other to not only solve this case but sort of need each other to survive right they need each other to balance out their worldviews season two i think i have a lot of issues with season two (laughs) but (laughs) 
I think it I think it is exploring the same sort of thing, right? Like mm. Taylor Kitsch's sexuality and like how that has become sort of a prison for him. As we talked about, like McAdams trauma, Colin Farrell, aside from his son stuff, uh, also has a very fraught relationship with his father and his dynamic with his father is sort of the supernatural element of that season season three is probably the most like season one and that you have partners who hate each other and then realize that they're the only people who can trust each other so so a lot of that i i don't want to be lonely dynamic mm. is between the cops themselves but i think you're right that season four again just like twists it a little bit to make it not specifically as broad as how Rust feels in season one, where he thinks he feels so unmoored from the entire world, right? That is so much of his philosophical underpinning is just this sense that like, he shouldn't be alive, right? Human mm -hmm. sentience was a mistake, right? Mm -hmm. um, but in season four, I think you do have the Navarro character who is dealing with something more specific mm -hmm. a cultural experience that is more specific a familial loss that is more specific and the same thing with foster's character who is dealing with the loss of her son again very similar to rust and the loss of his daughter in season one but also being in this place this un <laughs> this inhospitable place that is almost like rejecting their very presence mm. I just think there's something there that takes very good use of location yes uh, and uses the location and uses the culture and uses the fact that Navarro feels lost because she lost her mother and she mm -hmm. lost her bond here and Foster feels lost because she is in a community that is heavily Inuit and Inupiaq mm -hmm. and like Foster probably shouldn't be there because like she's really an asshole to these people a lot of the time <laughs> but I, I just think it's like again just like a little bit of a twist in the same way that's focusing on you know, Jodie Foster's character, Danvers' mm -hmm. stepdaughter, Leah, is a little bit of a twist. It's just something slightly different mm. that I think changes the focus that we are accustomed to and gives us a little bit more of a internal exploration of these characters. Um, sometimes maybe too vaguely i do want to say that i do think the show could have been like two more episodes i agree you know and done maybe like a little bit more with fleshing out who these women are but fundamentally i do think there are really interesting sort of like horror genre ideas here about loneliness and loneliness of place and like the prevailing feeling of the uncanny elevating all of that. I really want to talk about um, both the place and the characters. And, you know, just as a short aside, you'll notice I've no point asked you whether you actually like the show or not. <laughs> <laughs> 
I do. <laughs> part of it is uh, a part of it. It's because I I've watched it. I rewatched the season finale this morning, kind of to have it really fresh in my mind before we spoke. And mm-hmm. there's a part of me that is really dissatisfied with the show, but I can't mm-hmm. stop reading about it thinking about it, looking at the recaps, at the explainers. Even though I don't need the explainers, there's the mystery of it, the puzzle, Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. whether... I think both things exist at the same time for me. Something cannot have... Uh, a, a piece of media cannot have fully answered the questions that it poses and at the same yes. time still leave you with a good aftertaste because the questions were so compelling and so un- weird and eerie and the sensation of watching it, even though I don't think the 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 finale really stuck the landing, I mm-hmm. cherished the whole package. I wanted it to be a, lo- mm-hmm. a bit longer, as you said. I wanted it to be maybe eight episodes so that it could mm-hmm. really... F- finalize a lot of the 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 plot lines that it had started to investigate but that aside i wanted to ask you about the the dynamic between the two lead characters because i think that's also kind of one of the core uh aspects of the show this edition as well as the the original true detective this dynamic between two sort of cranky assholes who want to do the right thing but don't do it in the best in the best way often and Mm -hmm. outside of the obvious kind of gender flip of everything of this being a very heavily female coded show um Mm -hmm. which is obviously not an accident but you're also having two actors of a very different kind of presence and very different kind of um relationship with the audience because Callie Reese is not as well known as established right. as Jodie Foster and Jodie Foster in her mind has a very particular kind of um, idea that is always attached to her outside of the mm-hmm. Silence of the Lambs comparisons she's always played a kind of character that is radically intelligent sometimes mm-hmm. a huge asshole on screen and also very very no nonsense and very not cold, but very, um, not someone, not, she doesn't usually play characters who would open up easily to anyone right. else in their orbit. Right. And I wonder kind of what do you think about the dan- the dynamic between Danvers and Navarro and how that translates, how that translates with the actresses that play them? Man, I think that, I honestly think the dynamic is again, uh, as fundamental to the idea of this show as it is to just this genre in general, like so many cop shows are mismatched pairs, right? Like Homicide, Law and Order, The Wire, uh, poke any show about (laughs) a pair of people Mm -hmm. and you mostly are going to find that they do not get along. Mm-hmm. Because that provides so much uh, narrative tension to your story to pick at why two people get on each other's nerves uh, rather than get along. Um, this isn't Parks and Rec. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, this is, this is like two characters who are stuck in a car together for hours at a time and who a lot of the time can't stand each other. So I, I, always, I always really liked that construct that true detective stayed you know it honored the form 
of uh, opposites attract sort of partners and it honored the form of you're stuck in the car together and you're driving to these disparate locations and you're often driving to places where you know there's a body right mm -hmm. like there is a certain tone over these car scenes that i think uh really adds to the conversations within them so i think a lot of that is unsurprising right i i don't think there's a ton of new stuff to the fact that danvers and novaro don't get along what i think is really interesting about it though and what brings it back to the horror idea of this season mm -hmm. so much of why they don't get along is because novaro sees and hears weird shit <laughs> and danvers is like i don't want anything to do with that <laughs> Well, it's the skeptic you know, it and the becomes, believer dynamic, isn't it? Exactly. And it becomes a question of religion and faithfulness, which again is very similar to Rust and Marty's like philosophical and ideological and I'm a pessimist or a realist conversations. Um, but I love that we shift perspectives throughout the show to understand what each of them is feeling and seeing and to get the opportunity to make up our own decisions, right? Like I really, I really love that. I love that in, and this is gonna be a little bit of a spoiler and I'll say that up front, mm. but when we see the scene that explains why the two of them essentially broke up, like why yeah. their uh, partnership ended and it's because they come across a man who has killed his girlfriend and we see that at that time novaro saw something right she mm -hmm, saw like mm -hmm. a ghost a ghost in pain that conveyed to her what this man had done uh, that inspired her to break protocol and kill him and danvers can't have that right so i i loved that as an update on the breakup because in true detective season one as we know the breakup is because rust slept with marty's wife right yeah it's much more so pedestrian it's much more like two bros who just can't get along <laughs> And you know what? Like, that serves its own purpose in that season. Like, whatever. That's fine. But I liked here that it was, you know, I understand Navarro doing something that Danvers can't trust. You killed this man because you saw a ghost. You know, like, do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, when you put him in terms that, like, frank, <laughs> I understand why the two of them would end their partnership. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so I, I do think that there is a lot of like familiar stuff to their relationship. And I, I do think there are horror specific updates that really work for me. Even mm. when they start working together again, right? Like they still sort of hate each other. You know, like you still have Novaro telling Danvers, oh, by the way, I see your dead son. <laughs> <laughs> Which is just a dickish thing to do, even if it is true. Just keep it to yourself. Keep it to yourself. But then at the same time, for Danvers to say to Novaro, like, you pray, lol, that's hilarious. You know, like mm. they know exactly 
they know exactly how to hurt each other. Mm-hmm. And I, I really was, um, I really was touched by that, that these two women who clearly understand what each other have gone through in terms of like losing close family members and desperately trying to hold on to some kind of identity and knowing what they're up against in terms of like this insular community. Yes, there's sexism. That's clearly a shared problem, but the insularity of the community is almost the larger problem. And for them to sort of be reckoning with all of that and also grappling with this core question of, you know, how much supernatural is really present in this place and how does that guide your decision making? I, I really felt like we got some solid scenes out of that framing that furthered the, because I, like, I ascribe to a supernatural read of the, of the series. I, I know the ambiguity is pulled in there, so I'm making the specific choice that I think there's a supernatural read. So I think that, like, there are really interesting supernatural horror genre things that come out of that friction between yeah. the two of them. And actually, I'm glad you bring it up because that that's kind of one of my... I don't want to call it an issue, but kind of one of my come off it attitudes. You know, mm-hmm. I also mm-hmm. subscribe to a supernatural read of the show. I think it's almost mm-hmm. impossible not to. And mm-hmm. interestingly, like, you know, when I was um, rereading your pieces that you've written about the show and in your interview with Issa Lopez, kind of you write this uh, in this beautiful way that there's three ways to interpret the finale. Um, and I, mm-hmm. I'd argue that the show itself, you know, it's the real story, it's the cover-up, and there's the supernatural explanation. And I've mm-hmm. read in other interviews with Issa Lopez where she's kind of really doubled down to this idea that the ambiguity is at the heart of the show, but you could read it as purely rational or, mm-hmm. or supernatural. And this is the bit that I kind of want to call a bit of bullshit on and mm-hmm. that and I subscribe to you read that it is supernatural not only because we're seeing mm-hmm. this but because we there are too many open-ended questions that cannot be explained by anything other than supernatural there's some, mm-hmm. too many leads that are given by ghosts or this she goddess mother nature deity figure um mm-hmm. and I wonder kind of what you think about you know, outside of what, um, so let me rephrase this. I wonder what you think about this forced ambiguity. Like, do you, that Issa Lopez has kind of really stuck to, at least in her many, many interviews. Now, do you think yeah. that the show is purely supernatural and just, you know, upselling the ambiguity to continue the discourse? Or do you think it does actually work both ways? If you choose to look at it rationally or if you choose to interpret it supernaturally? I mean, if you choose to look at it rationally, then Navarro and sort of all of these women are just, like, detached from reality, right? Mm. You know? And so, you know, Kayla uh, having their child uh, draw an image of a, you know, a demonic-looking woman who is a local legend and the reappearance of the tongue and 
the you know the justice ladies marching these men out on the ice and leaving them there because they have faith that something could get them uh, you know i understand why you go with ambiguity mm -hmm. because i honestly think this is again very cynical place for me to go <laughs> but i i really i would be very very doubtful if hbo was like yes do a hundred percent you have permission to go a hundred percent supernatural mm -hmm. i would really be shocked by that because again to go back to the x-files which i think was our like longest running example of genre television mm -hmm. the early seasons of that show also have a lot of ambiguity right i mean yeah. there are certain episodes that are very clear the fluke monster is very real mm -hmm. the vampires are less real you know mm -hmm. what i mean so like mm -hmm. each episode sort of again toyed with your expectations and with how far they were willing to go of course when we then jumped into like alien assassins the show reached a point of no return <laughs> yeah there's no ambiguity but in alien assassins there's no ambiguity in alien assassins but i i really I, I would be incredibly surprised if hbo was willing to give over that vision of the show because i don't think they want to be known as just the genre prestige channel right mm. like they have house of the dragon so they have fantasy covered, but I think they really want to maintain a stake in a certain kind of realism just as part of their brand. So I, you know, this is all my speculation. I have no like secret intel. So I think, I, I think that probably honestly was like either a true dictate or like an undercurrent of a dictate or whatever. Mm. No like your point does the show work with that ambiguity i have talked to people who refuse a supernatural reading of season four wow say that they really yeah and who say that they really prefer the show to simply be like season one a like a cop show that flirted with genre mm -hmm. but doesn't go all the way over to it and those people also just don't like horror in general. Mm -hmm. So I think that, like, I don't necessarily know how you could have that reading, but I have talked to people who do. I just think there's too much baked into the show. Too much of Navarro's perspective is shaped by that. Mm -hmm. Too much of the Justice Lady is shaped by that. Too much of Ennis, like, as mm. a place is shaped by that. So I think the only thing that really hangs together for me is a supernatural read but i'm i'm really curious about your read because you like i thought the finale was the strongest episode of the show but did you oh. wish that the finale had done more in terms of genre or do you think it didn't answer all of its own questions or like i'd love your take on what did or did not work for you the two things I loved the most, even though they were kind of the same trick, just deployed twice, was the um, the storytelling aspect and the mm -hmm. different perspectives. So we're we're hearing a character tell us something, but the show is showing us what really happened. Mm -hmm. um, and we get that twice in the finale, and it's deployed really effectively. And it 
it riles I it riled me up as an audience because the idea of a character lying to me um straight in the face um through the characters really made me connect so much more to the crime itself so I love how the finale kind of never lets go never lets go of the murder of Annie but wraps mm-hmm. it up in this larger tragedy of Ennis right of this of the generations or the entire generation, maybe, that has been lost because of um, commercial corruption and police corruption, because of this, um, the the scientists who are doing their research and are just drilling through the ice and the still the generation of stillborn babies and the pain that that carries with it. We don't necessarily meet all of them or all of those families or all of those mothers, but we can understand mm-hmm. what that means um and i think that ties into tigers are not afraid as well with isa lopez's film of this idea of uh the future being eradicated by greed Mm -hmm. although it's a lot less Mm -hmm. it's very it's not ham-fisted at all i think it's a really subtle through line that's deployed visually in a really effective way and this idea of institutions of power lying to protect their own skin, even to the people like Hank that they're trying to use and dangle a carrot in front of them to commit terrible things. Loved all of that. I'm I wish it hadn't abandoned certain characters. Like mm-hmm. um Pete is his name, Hank's son. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I there was at least another couple of scenes that I could have done with in that plot line wanted mm-hmm. a little bit more of the justice ladies it was mm-hmm. uh, it explained everything fine but and i'm not fully i know that this is what they're being called not fully on board with justice ladies as a collective term i think we could have they could have <laughs> maybe workshop that um i love this idea that there's just not one murderer um that yeah. everybody can everybody has a part of it I don't ne- I didn't necessarily want a full on explanation of what she is or who she is. Wanted a bit mm-hmm. more Fiona Shaw's character. She was one of the most intriguing mm-hmm. secondary characters for me, not only just because I love her as a screen presence. Anything she's in, she is she holds so much power and violence in her deliveries without ever even moving a muscle she can just be making tea or rubbing her feed and telling you this horrendous backstory of hers and it's terrifying i want more of her and want to understand what it what's her connection to ennis and to the dark and is she really does she really have a ghost lover into that (laughs) what is happening there um i don't really care that much about the rust connection there i'm more interested like okay so what is this thing about the dead sometimes want to pull you to them sometimes i just want to say hello like there's such a just these nuggets of beautiful eeriness that have been drip fed through the series that kind of don't go anywhere Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think the stuff with Cole's father, I have such a complicated relationship with all of the callbacks to season one, because I think the spiral was really mm-hmm. interesting. Mm-hmm. And I thought it being Russ's dad was like, fine. But I also think that with a couple more episodes, I think the show 
could have really flourished as its own thing, not just its own thing that needed to speak to season one because it's part of the true mm-hmm. detective franchise and because all of the seasons have little nods to season one Mm -hmm. i completely agree with you that i think a couple more episodes would have given us more rose how did her and navarro become so close i don't need every element of her life i don't need like a rose specific episode but i want to see more of her and her interactions with other people i liked where pete's story ended because i like the implication that he's just going to have to live with this and that's Mm going to be really hard but i think this location is so unique and the opportunities it provides for horror are so unique that we just could have done more and and you know fundamentally that's my praise for the show right mm-hmm. that i wanted to spend more time here and more time with them and more time with these women um but i i guess i just am really grateful for what we got mm-hmm. uh, and for you know like the power of the two leads together and just the oddness of the ice caves and the fact that like you said this like entrenched evil power structure is very much an homage to season one and season two Mm. true detective which are about like corrupt cops and land deals and polluting the earth and getting rich off of it like all of that just is very very rich Mm. and i think we could have done more with it i liked what we got i think we could have done more yeah <laughs> i i think that's much more succinctly put and but you know, i would have i would have loved more ghosts you know <laughs> like the scene in when the anders lund comes back to life and tells yeah. navarro that her mother yes. has a message for her like that shit was great the chase through the like dredging ship where Navarro sees Julia's body floating in the water. Like, I wanted more horror, I think. I was really fulfilled by the scary, spooky stuff. And just, like, two more episodes, give me another scary chase scene. Give me another possessed man. (laughs) Totally. And also, you know, the random Christmas tree in the middle of the abandoned factory thing mm-hmm. where they go the bleeding mm-hmm. out of the ears that navarro gets every time she has a vision like oh is this causing brain damage if you see too many ghosts mm-hmm. you know there mm-hmm. i don't need explanations i just wanted more of it and i kind of want to be before we wrap up wanted to ask you about navarro because you know jodie foster is jodie foster you know she's solid mm-hmm. she's always incredibly sharp she's doing something really interesting with danvers particularly in the finale i think her performance kind of reaches new levels partly because i think we're used to seeing her as quite a very sharp smart cold almost um mm-hmm. on-screen presence and she really sucks in this like she's yeah. really good at being a complete asshole yeah, yeah. and that's mm-hmm. a register that really absolutely worked for me i was getting you know classic jodie foster with a little Mm -hmm. bit of uh newness sprinkled in but 
Mm-hmm. Callie Reese was really a revelation and kind of her ending mm-hmm. is also shrouded in mystery. Her walking mm-hmm. into the night, her being delivered supernaturally her native name um, by a hand. I'm assuming it was her mother or her sister, one of those. But mm-hmm. what do you think? And this is kind of part of the the conversation that's still ongoing online since the since the series finale. What do you personally think happened to her? And it, and that final scene in the daylight now, where she reunites with Danvers, having a cup of tea, doing a crossword, looking onto the lake. I. I do not think that that character would have died by suicide. I think that I could see a version of that character where she is no longer fighting her sensibilities Mm -hmm. and where she is more at peace. Uh, I just, I, I think that given everything we see that character go through, walking onto the ice felt more to me like finding herself than letting go of herself, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. But I think that to go back to our, I wish there had been a little bit more storyline. I think that if I had sort of a clearer understanding of why did she join the military and why did she become a cop? Are those institutions that she was drawn to because she thought they would help tamp down on her like supernatural whisperings, right? Were Mm -hmm. the routines and the regimens of that lifestyle, did those appeal to her? because of like the chaos and trauma of her childhood, right? I almost really feel like on a certain level, we did not need the military background. It almost felt like ancillary from what we already knew about the character by the time she's in Ennis. But I I say all of that just because I think I could see an ending for this character where she realizes that she can let go of all of that stuff because she no longer needs to keep boundaries and tension in her mind and she no longer needs those structures to survive she can be a person who is open Mm. to these possibilities and open to what they suggest about herself without needing the inherent violence of being part of the military or of being a cop to control them for herself. So that's the reading I got, right? That like she goes off the grid and she leaves this life behind because so much of it was shaped by fear, like Mm -hmm. fear of what she felt and fear of what she perceived. That's the reading that I would go toward, especially because also in a true detective tradition, the cops usually survive, right? Like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the ending the ending of season one is that speech that uh, Pizzolatto lifts from Alan Moore, which is about like finding the light within the darkness. Season two, Kitch's character dies, but McAdams 
and Colin Farrell's characters like flee and share news of the conspiracy. I'm trying to remember, actually, does Colin Farrell's character die? Regardless, I remember that McAdam survives and like she shares the news of the conspiracy. So I, I think that like if Navarro's if Navarro were to kill herself, I just think it would be a certainly bleak ending for a season of television that I think was more about like retribution and justice at its core than it was about like succumbing. So that's my read, which mm -hmm. is not necessarily a supernatural read. Again, I know there are like ghost Navarro <laughs> reads out there. <laughs> I'll be honest. I'm one uh, of yes. them. I think she's dead. I that's think she's fine. a ghost. <laughs> Tell me, Anna. Okay, tell me more. How do you do? You think um, she just walks into the ice, and it, we we have to take it literally? So I do get the sense that there's something missing, as in like a couple of scenes, even a couple of shots. You know, I I felt this this almost un incomplete thing about that scene. Uh, mm -hmm. Logically, there's no way that someone would survive going off into the darkness and that at that temperature um mm -hmm. i it, from everything we learn and we know about navarro up until that point my read is that she sees something that we're no longer privy to as an audience and she's mm -hmm. going in that direction and i don't think it's a deliberate um i don't think it's her taking her own life i think it's her following something in another plane of existence or vision mm. that makes sense that is enticing enough i don't think she sees the darkness i think she's seeing something that is um calling to her that might be the light mm. in the darkness we don't see the light and the kind of the changing of perspectives that um the show plays around with as it as it you know unfolds we're often jumping between the rational and the supernatural the supernatural often we're seeing it from navarro's perspective and the rational from danvers the fact that danvers sees her son in the ice and believes it to be real is kind of that mm -hmm. first thing of her actually seeing something that isn't there we know it isn't there because holden is dead long dead mm -hmm. and i think the fact that we're not privy to uh, to navarro's perspective when we see her walk out into the darkness puts us in that rational box we're not we're just seeing the cold certain death and emptiness but i think if we were seeing it from her perspective we'd be seeing something different mm, this is so fascinating i had not thought of this at all so I love the idea of this read. I almost want to go back and watch the episode now with that in mind. <laughs> and in a way, that kind of still ends in the in the kind of slightly flippant thing of, well, but she's dead now. Right. Yeah. Right, yeah. Because right. like even <laughs> even if she is walking towards something that we're not privy to that she's seeing, she there's no way she would physically survive that. Her like ability to right. see ghosts does not see does not extend to supernatural um, heat retention. <laughs> Healing of <Yeah. laughs> She's actually packed a ton of space heaters. Yeah, we just exactly. haven't seen. We like, haven't seen this. <laughs> and, it, and this is kind of part of my... Um, I, I really enjoyed the show as a whole and kind of kept 
be I'm really enthralled by that mystery of it, the cosmic horror of it all. But the same mm-hmm. thing as I mentioned about uh, and I keep forgetting her name, Fiona Shaw's character. Um, Rose, right? Rose, yes. The mm-hmm. that line that she utters that kind of had me in, in its grips of sometimes the dead just want to pull you to them. I think might yeah. be again with those extra few shots or scenes or even just a change of perspective. Um, might have been the clue to understand what happens to Danvers, but that's my read. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think again, like I just wanted, I wanted more of Fiona Shaw's, like, you know, how much of her ideology was because of like Russ Cole's father. Like, I don't think that much, right? Like, she's her mm-hmm. own unique, intriguing character, but uh, you know one of the best things that season one did was it kept me thinking about rust coal. And mm-hmm. I think if, you know, if the best thing this season does is keep me thinking about Navarro, keep me thinking about Rose, that's, you know, that's a triumph in and of itself. Mm. And before I let you go, Roxana, is there anything else that you wanted to say about true detective night country? I don't think so. I think we covered it fairly well. Uh, you know, Issa Lopez did get tapped to do season five. So good for her. More good for her. More of True Detective coming. Very curious about where it's going to take place. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I want to know. Where do people think season five will take place? <laughs> well, I will say we we didn't like talk that much about Ennis, but I did love the setting. I think it's so percent the cold, the natural aspect of it. The mm-hmm. you know I'm reading this um I'm reading this horror novel at the moment that takes place kind of in a research facility deep in the ocean. Maybe that's season five. Like, we don't need to go to outer space to find spooky places. Just find a really dark place with a lot of natural landscapes where no one yeah. could survive un- unaided. Yes. That's what we need. And and you know what, what I'll say is when I spoke with Issa Lopez, she mm-hmm. talked about the allure of being underwater oh. and how much of the ocean we do not understand, right? We have not explored Mm-hmm. So I think you just made your pitch. Season five in the water. <laughs> and are mermaids real? Mermaid horror. Yeah. True detective mermaid. Let's do it. Give it to me. Let's do it. <laughs> Roxana, thank you so much for your time and for your insight. It's been just a genuine pleasure hearing you speak. Yes, this was a delight. Thank you so much for having me on. <laughs> <laughs>